This podcast is brought to you by LMU Munich. Okay, so good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Christoph Knill. I'm a political scientist at the University of Munich. And uh, it's my pleasure to chair this session today, this talk today, uh, which is part of a lecture series, a whole series of lectures on the topic of global capitalism, who gets what, when, and why. And um, the, today's lecture uh, focus is entitled uh, The Economy of the Internal and External, uh, with the basic question uh, being the, what happens to elements of the social and natural space that happens to these elements, then they become subject to capitalization, uh, to economic exploitation. And I'm very happy that we have uh, two prominent keynote speakers today, it's our guests, uh, who have researched uh, on these issues, have addressed these issues from very various angles. Uh, to my left, Nivedita uh, Menon from Yavahal. Well, uh, Nehru University in New Delhi and uh, Manuela Boatka from uh, University of Freiburg. And yeah, we will proceed as we also did in the previous uh, lectures, that we have uh, keynote speeches of about 15 to 20 minutes by both of our guests. This is then followed by a short panel discussion uh, before we open the floor to the general audience and the basic goals to finish at around uh, 8 o'clock. Afterwards, there will be some rings, a short reception downstairs. Um, yes, that's more or less the, the basic procedure. There's one additional remark to make that the whole lecture is recorded on video, and so uh, you must tacitly agree uh, that you are recorded. At least your question is mm -hmm. recorded if you ask one. Um, well, we, of course, hope <laughs> that there are some questions and contributions to the discussion. Um, okay, so um, let me then briefly uh, introduce um, Nivedita, who we will, we will start uh, with uh, her, um, the uh, speech uh, or the, the presentation. And yeah, Nivedita is a uh, professor of political science at, um, as I said, Yavahalal Nehru University in New Delhi. And um, yeah, she is um, not only a scientist, uh, but also a noted feminist author, translator, and also political activist. Uh, and she's also, uh, yeah, characterized as one of the, the, the pioneers of feminist theory in India. She has published widely in international journals, book publications on a range of uh, topics, topics uh, related to these uh, uh, overall uh, uh, themes and uh, probably, and you might correct me if I'm wrong, but her, her uh, most mostly recognized uh, publication, internationally recognized publication is a book entitled uh, Seeing Like a Feminist where the basic argument is that, um, yeah, that uh, existing uh, framings, existing institutionalizations of gender roles, um, of gender biases, uh, of, of role expectations in society <coughs> are, are 
completely challenged when analyzing these patterns from a different, namely a feminist perspective. So that is more or less the, the, the basic uh, message and argument of this book that has been widely recognized internationally. Um, and today she will um, apply this perspective to a very specific topic, namely to the issue of, of land ownership for women and uh, focusing on the question to what extent the growing capitalization, uh, economic exploitation of land ownership uh, entails the need to, um, to adjust uh, or shift um, perspective, uh, feminist perspective, feminist theoretical interpretation of land ownership for women. So we're very much looking forward to your talk. Um, thank you very much, Christoph, and thank you to CAS for giving me the opportunity to be here and to Stefan for inviting me. Um, in order to save time, I will read out a presentation I've prepared and timed so that uh, it will take exactly 20 minutes, I hope. Um, so as Christoph explained, uh, I'm actually going to be in this in this presentation, um, which is based on a larger work. I'm actually challenging a feminist common sense. So rather than applying a feminist perspective to something, I'm bringing together different kinds of scholarship to challenge uh, an unquestioned feminist uh, uh, agenda, which is giving women individual rights to land. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to look at what happens when one brings different kinds of perspectives to bear on it. Um, bringing women into the ambit of individual property rights has long been one of the key issues in feminist practice and scholarship. This presentation focuses on land ownership and the growing recognition that in the face of large-scale land acquisitions for corporate globalization, the only real challenge to capitalist ambitions is posed by collective ownership of land and strong assertions of the commons. Today I will attempt to think through what this recognition would mean for feminist understandings of land rights for women, drawing largely on the Indian experience. I think that at this moment in time, several kinds of political movements and several strands of scholarship from the end of the 20th century onwards, for about three decades or so, are coming together to alert us to a need for a shift in feminist perspective on the question of land rights for women. Let me begin with what we hear from struggles against the accelerated and large-scale land acquisition by the state for use by private corporations. So I'm drawing on the uh, Indian experience, but the larger work looks at similar experiences in Africa and in Latin America. Um, and I think you can see similar patterns. But um, when we look at struggles against the accelerated and large-scale land acquisitions in India by the state for use by private corporations, we find that activists in these movements and scholars <coughs> engaged in understanding land relations are increasingly coming to the recognition that the Indian state is now very amenable to giving joint title deeds for husband and wife uh, to family land. And this has been the main demand of the women's movement for decades. In other words, these activists note the trend 
to restrict farmers to family plots by giving them formal title deeds, while the state takes control of common and public lands. Enclosures, evictions and land use policies are all straight state strategies for taking over common and public lands. And of course, title deeds are no magic potion against land acquisition. Rather, individual title deeds facilitate land acquisitions by the state. For instance, the All India Union of Forest Working People has now become opposed to the title deed as such, to the individual title deed as such. Uh, and it sees land use uh, because they feel that the title deed sees land use and ownership exclusively through the prism of the family. Movement leaders assert that only collective ownership can in fact fracture patriarchy, and the organization works with movements that collectively cultivate land. Common lands that embody layers of customary usufruct rights or use rights are the biggest impediment to market relations, and prime among such lands are forests. It is in this context that land occupation movements by castes and tribes traditionally excluded from agriculture must be viewed and understood. For example, there was a famous occupation of forest lands in Kerala by indigenous peoples in India called Adivasis, and uh, they were violently evacuated by the police in 2005. And the chairperson of their organization, C.K. Janu, said in an interview, Adivasis, that is indigenous people, are the real owners of land. Our main slogan is the right to live in the land where we are born until death. So this supposed occupation of lands by the poor is in fact a reoccupation of common lands which were turned into state-owned land overnight through colonial legislation such as the Indian Forest Acts of 1878 and 1927 and similar legislations have been passed by the independent Indian state as well. So the really disturbing question for feminist scholarship and practice, uh, or disturbing not in the sense of, um, <clears throat> disturbing in the sense of productive, I should say, really, uh, is, so the really productive question is, is there a disjuncture between women's individual rights to land and struggles to protect or create a commons? It seems that something counterintuitive with regard to feminist common sense is being articulated in these contexts. Let me very quickly trace three kinds of land ownership in India. Uh, so there's, uh, but I will focus really on only on one of them, but there are three kinds of uh, land ownership in India, which one could quickly map as agricultural land, which is governed by <coughs> what are called personal laws, which govern different religious communities. Then there are forests that are governed by forest acts, and there are customary land ownership among communities defined as tribes in the Indian constitution. So there are these three kinds of uh, uh, kinds of land ownership. Now, um, a very, I, I look at women's rights to land and personal laws uh, in some detail, the other two I will only refer to, because this has been one of the key issues for the Indian women's movement, uh, that women should have equal rights to land, uh, agricultural land. Now, the question is, why has the Indian state become so amenable to join title deeds for husband and wives by the early 21st century? Why are women's rights to land centrally located in the national policy agenda? Feminist scholars like Bina Agarwal have argued for over a decade and a half for women's independent rights in land. And she has argued and they have argued that these are that independent rights in land to, for women are opposed by politicians and policymakers because the very idea runs counter to deep-rooted notions of appropriate gender relations. 
uh, and uh, equal gender relations appear to them to be threatening to existing family and kinship structures. That's why it has been opposed. Now, nothing leads anybody in India, certainly not feminists, to think that these attitudes have changed. On the contrary, policymakers continue to express the most appallingly sexist and misogynist notions quite freely. And yet, in uh, 2005, the Hindu Succession Amendment Act uh, gave women equal rights to ancestral pro property. Uh, this amendment act was passed unanimously in the upper house and then in the lower house of Indian parliament. And several states had already passed such legislation between 1986 and 1994. <clears throat> so the, uh, this amendment act of 2005 established gender equality on agricultural land and in joint family property. And it was hailed by feminists as being path-breaking. Now, when you look at the debate in Parliament on the issue, it was absolutely fascinating, because the debate uh, in, the, in the lower house, which is the elected, directly elected house, is very intriguing. Because when you look at the debate, you find that several MPs are actually expressing very negative views about the bill, reflecting really deep-rooted notions of gender inequality. Many of them appeared to be unaware of the basic provisions in the bill. And yet the bill was unanimously passed by opposition and uh, uh, ruling government alike. Uh, it was at that time, uh, uh, right now it's BJP, uh, a BJP-led coalition. At that time it was a Congress-led coalition. So what we need to ask ourselves is what the transformation is that is being brought about in the name of equal rights for women. We also need to note this year 2005, for it turns out to be significant, as we shall soon see. Um, when we turn to the colonial, so very quickly to go to the colonial period, some very interesting historical work is now emerging on Hindu law reform and codification in late colonial India, a process that has hitherto been debated in feminist scholarship only in terms of women's rights. Were they enhanced or curtailed uh, uh, by these processes? But this new work by scholars like Ritu Birla and Eleanor Newbegin uh, is enabling a reframing of the codification of Hindu laws as the making of capitalist subjects. This is Ritu Birla's phrase. What we see in short is the production of modern regimes of property under colonialism. Through law reforms of the 1860s, colonial officials both created and formalized the personal laws, uh, the effect of which was different on Muslim and Hindu personal law. And what is interesting uh, is that at the time, in, you know, in the late 19th century, Quranic law was understood to be already modern because Muslim families were considered to comprise of property-owning individuals. But it was the Hindu family that was considered to be in that sense backward because they were it was a joint family. So contrary to contemporary discourses about Muslim law being backward, at that point it was Hindu law that was considered as requiring reform to bring it into the modern world of individual rights to property. Um, so, um, and we find uh, uh, very interesting, there are all kinds of debates in India about reforms, uh, social reform and so on, and what we actually, when we read social reform debates through this lens, we see it not so much that the social reform debates are conducted as if they are about the status of women. Uh, and it is about giving women rights to property and so on. But what we actually see here when we see through this light is that the impetus towards reform of Hindu property regimes comes from conflicts between the modern professional, professional and mercantile elites on the one hand and the traditional agrarian elites on the other, which put pressure on the system of joint intergenerational property ownership 
which agrarian elites required to maintain their authority, while for Indian merchants competing with European capital, the focus on joint rights and its effect of locking away capital in land was problematic. <coughs> uh, so both groups often were found in the same family. So basically, younger men gradually opposed joint family living and collective property ownership in the emerging Anglo-Hindu law. Um, after independence, one of the key amendments to the Indian constitution restricted the right to agrarian property significantly through a process in which we see a nation state establishing a capitalist economy through a passive revolution. Uh, here by passive revolution, I'm referring to uh, the scholar Shudipta Kaviraj's development of the Gramsci notion to explain the pattern of development adopted by the Indian state. That is, for a thoroughgoing bourgeois proper modern industrialized society to be established, for large scale industrialization to take place, modern regimes of property needed to be put into place. And one of the measures to achieve this is land reforms to end pre-capitalist relations in land. These reforms were not meant to weaken property rights as such, but only landed property in feudal estates. And you can so see the fledgling bourgeois state putting in place notions of legitimate and illegitimate uh, property. Um, so the development of individual rights to property in personal laws has followed one kind of trajectory, as I very, very briefly outlined. While common lands, forests, for example, and customary laws in tribal areas have other histories. In both cases, transforming commons into state-controlled state land or privatizing them over the 19th to the 21st centuries. So if you look at how uh, the, modern, the entry of the modern legal system has affected customary laws, uh, for example, let me cite one study <coughs> of um, five tribes uh, governed by customary laws at different stages of the interface between customary um, law and the modern legal system. And this study notes that the changes introduced by the modern legal system resulted, resulted in class formation and a stronger patriarchal ethos. The intervention of individual ownership-based laws first turned land, into, uh, land without an individual title into state property, but this prepares the ground for transferring power from the community to a few elite men who then take control of all decision-making and interpret customary law to their own benefit. So basically, the entry of the modern legal system entrenches gender and class inequality. So we really have to ask the question, the property titling agenda who is it good for? What is it good for? Now, in June 2010, a news report in Indian newspapers noted that the Peruvian economist Hernando de Soto hailed as the poor man's capitalist. This is what the journalist said he was, the poor man's capitalist, had arrived in India to prepare a roadmap for slum development in the country to, and to help the Congress government then in power to merge the informal economy in the slums of the country with the formal or mainstream one. When De Soto uh, was interviewed by the press, he said he was invited by the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry. He said to give a few conferences and to meet a few people in government. Among the people he got in government that he met was the Prime Minister, uh, who, uh, who then, was, you know, he presented the Prime Minister with his two books. Um, now, uh, the De Soto agenda, and of course, uh, he, uh, as many of you probably know, um, uh, he is the founder uh, of the Institute for Liberty and Democracy, a Lima-based nonprofit organization, which has uh, intervened in lawmaking in many parts of uh, uh, the so-called developing world. That is, a private organization has actually framed law in, say, for example, Egypt. 
Um, now, the De Soto agenda has long been recognized by some scholars as a project of attempting to bring about capitalism globally through sustained state intervention. And one of the scholars who has done one of the most sustained critiques of the De Soto agenda is Timothy Mitchell, uh, who pointed out in an essay that uh, De Soto's two books, The Other Path and The Mystery of Capital, um, became the most widely cited studies of non-Western economic development in a generation. Now, De Soto basically argues in these books, based on findings from research in five countries, that a large amount, uh, five countries of the global south, that a large amount of their wealth lies outside the formal economy, trapped in forms, these are his terms, They're, they are trapped because they lie outside the formal economy. This wealth is trapped in forms that cannot enter the market. If it doesn't enter the market, it's trapped. It's dead capital, he uses these terms, and therefore cannot be invested to create further wealth. So this dead capital consists principally of land and housing to which most people in non-Western countries have no formal title registered with the state. Live capital, according to De Soto, is created by transforming the value of material assets into abstract forms. And this abstract form is credit and capital. Mitchell points out, using the example of Egypt, one of the countries studied by De Soto, that informal property arrangements have not arisen because of ignorance of notions of private property or because the West did not try to export its property system abroad. On the contrary, in the 19th century, Mitchell points out, Ottoman and European rulers in Cairo launched a series of attempts to try and transform property arrangements into systems based on an absolute right of private ownership. What was the difference? The difference was, says Mitchell, that in Egypt, farmers organized and resisted the attempt to, to, to create uh, uh, property rights, to transform property, property rights into individual property rights. And as Mitchell puts it, unlike the victims of property formalization in Europe, where enclosure and other powers of ownership forced millions of people off the land, rural populations in Egypt were able to delay, divert, or limit the introduction of absolute powers of ownership. However, once De Soto's program was adopted as part of neoliberal reforms in Egypt, ILD, that is his institute, drafted legislation and it was pushed through to bring about a mortgage law, a property titling program, and new rules for licensing small businesses. And gradually what happens, Mitchell points out, is that this, this program basically transformed capital into sources of rent rather than productive activity. De Soto's program now is promoted powerfully by bodies like the UNDP's High-Level Commission on Legal Empowerment of the Poor. And in fact, India's introduction to De Soto was not in 2010 with his first visit. This High-Level Commission, co-chaired by former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and Hernando De Soto, with India as one of its founding members, was set up in that year, 2005, in September 2005. So it's like reading a detective story when you put these different uh, streams of scholarship together, you suddenly understand that in 2005, why were these amendments to the Hindu Succession Act passed with such a puzzling lack of enthusiasm? With direct, I mean, in the debate, they're actually directly opposing it, but when it comes to show of hands, it's passed unanimously. So you wonder what was happening in 2005? What were the pressures that, the, that across the board left? Well, not so. The left was not so powerful in, the, but across the board, uh, opposition and government, uh, they realized that individual rights to property, the, the last barrier, which is giving women individual rights to ancestral joint property, has to be done because that has to be done in 2005. <clears throat> now, uh, the De Soto agenda involves, says Mitchell, the movement of assets from the outside to the inside of capital. 
The process advocated by De Soto of property titling and the use of property as collateral bring into being speculation, concentration of wealth, and the ac accumulation of rents. And the experience of property titling in the countries, in many other countries of Africa, if you, if you look at the scholarship, shows that basically property titling has led to a cementing of inequality. It has been argued by, uh, uh, for example, Aditya Nigam, that the widespread continuation of what is called pre-capitalist forms of production, both in agriculture and in non-agricultural sectors, is what confronts capital's onward march. Nigam argues that these are actually non-capitalist rather than pre-capitalist, which pre-capitalist obviously um, suggests a kind of telos, and uh, non-capitalist is in that sense a better term. Uh, and uh, Nigam argues that these non-capitalist forms represent the recalcitrant other of capital and capitalism, that which capitalism must seek to seize, discipline, control, and subsume within its own domain, but which constantly escape its logic. The transformation to bourgeois private property therefore involves, and has always involved, he says, a violent decimation of all forms of common property and even non-capitalist private property. So in conclusion, from this perspective, the state, the traditional religious community and the customary community are all equally problematic from the point of view of equitable access to land for women as well as other excluded castes and groups. A truly radical agenda would thus have to challenge all these factors simultaneously, state-led capitalist enclosures of commons, private individual land ownership and traditional gendered and casted forms of exclusion from land use in the context of accelerated decline of agriculture in an era of rampant dispossession. Mercia Andrews, land rights activist in South Africa, argues that no effective land struggle is possible without breaking up the nuclear family. A feminist agenda will clearly have to radically rethink our old slogan of land rights for women within an individual-centered capitalist regime of property and learning from the experience of movements for digital commons and intellectual property commons as the paradigm for the future work towards producing new forms of commons and collective anti-ownership use rights in land. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we directly continue with our uh, uh, second uh, guest, Manuela Watka. She's a professor of sociology at the University of Freiburg since 2000. Since October. Since October, so very recently before she's been in Berlin, the Free University. And yeah, Manuela has a, a range of topics she's interested in, amongst others, uh, research in social theory, world systems, analysis, sociology of development, political sociology, also especially for, I think, mostly relevant for the talk today, social inequality, uh, gender and violence, post-colonial studies. So to name the, the most central uh, areas of her research, in recently, or is, is, uh, it's maybe, I don't know, it's already out or it's still uh, forthcoming, the book, uh, Dynamics exactly. of Inequalities in a Global Perspective. Oh, that's a special it's issue. Special issue. journal, and it's, it's going to be out in March. Okay, so, so that's perfect. Uh, perfect, perfect time. <laughs> so, uh, yes, and she will talk uh, about the um, yeah economic exploitation of of citizenship. And yeah, March will talk. Floor mm -hmm. is yours. Thank you very much for the introduction and also for having me here. Thank you to the Center for Advanced Studies. It's it's really a pleasure to be here and to engage in such a dialogue. 
Um, I was wondering which topic would fit best the question that we were asked as a common denominator for this <coughs> session and in, the, in what spheres does capitalism expand that were previously not thought of as capitalist. And um, some recent research that I've done on um, the institution of citizenship by investment seemed to be the perfect example for this. Um, now, what is citizenship by investment to begin with? The possibility to confer citizenship to investors has been around for quite some time, uh, but it's been quite rare. It, it was a possibility or is a possibility in Belgium, in the United Kingdom, in the US, but normally, um, and that is also the big restriction, it comes with a residence requirement. So if you want the citizenship of a country and invest a big sum of money in order to get the citizenship, you are required to spend some time there for years normally in order to also get the citizenship. So what you get first is just a residence um, permit or a limited um, visa. Now, the institution of citizenship by investment is um, really um, not very recent, but it's pretty recent in the context of Europe. The very first time that it was um, implemented, that I know of, and um, I haven't seen anything in the literature, um, has been in the Caribbean, in um, the islands of St. Kitts and Nevis, on the one hand, uh, in 1984, and in Dominica, so not the Dominican Republic, but the island of Dominica, um, in 1993. What connects both of these moments is the fact that both countries have adopted the institution of citizenship by investment, selling citizenship to investors without the investors ever having to set foot in the country. The minute that their economy started to look a little bit shaky and the minute that they became independent from the United Kingdom. So in a sense, for St. Kitts and Nevis, which had a economy mainly centered on the export of sugar, becoming independent from the United Kingdom meant politically, of course, first of all, independence, but then reliance on a monocultural economy that was very much a colonial economy geared towards export of one commodity, namely sugar. So the one idea that was linked to conferring citizenship to investors was also linked to a residual benefit of having been a British colony, which was being part of the Commonwealth and still enjoying some kind of visa-free travel that all Commonwealth countries enjoy, which also made that interesting for investors. So even the press agency Reuters um, titled this news about St. Kitts and Nevis selling citizenship by making an analogy uh, of this kind of commodification by saying for decades the tropical island of uh, St. Kitts and Nevis has been selling sugar. Um, now it has invented an even sweeter commodity. It's selling its citizenship. So the very idea of the fact that we have something that is being commodified here that did not really, did not used to be a commodity before because it was considered to be the symbolic link between um, the culture and the territory and the citizen that uh, embodies the values of the nation state of which she or he is a citizen was a um, constant of citizenship theory for a long time and still is, basically. So that is St. Kitts and Nevis, 1984, one year after independence from the United Kingdom. The same thing, pretty much, um, so I'm not going to go into details, happened in, in Dominica, 1993, where um, a series of 
um, climatic problems led to the decline of the um, main export of bananas there, and that was the moment where Dominica implemented the same idea. Citizenship by investment um, for anyone who's interested. Now, for a long time we don't hear much about this at all, um, and all of a sudden, around 2010, we have a surge of the same type of ideas implemented by several governments throughout um, Europe, mainly Southern and Eastern Europe. The first time I came across this was um, on the example of Hungary, which implemented it at the end of 2012, right after um, the Troika had um, decided not to refinance the debt that Hungary had with the European Central Bank and the um, IMF and the World Bank, so that Hungary introduced a similar institution that was not citizenship by investment all of a sudden, but it was a kind of residence um, and fast track to citizenship linked to the investors buying government bonds and thus refinancing the debt, pretty huge debt that Hungary had with um, the IMF and the World Bank. Now, um, that means, in order to give you a number, um, that for 250,000 euros, you can become a Hungarian citizen in five years if you buy government bonds that would mature also in five years' time. The measure was highly criticized um, by mainly conservative politicians, but also at the EU level, for being an abuse of European citizenship. Not so much because at the EU level people were concerned about what the Hungarian government is doing with its citizenship, but of course because of the fact that selling Hungarian citizenship to anyone means selling European Union citizenship. And then um, investors who don't even have to set foot in Hungary could, however, set foot in any other European country. Not only that, but also work and you know, stand up for elections, even if they so wish. Now, um, Hungary's case was more or less prominently discussed in the press, but is um, not, is by far, not the most prominent one. Um, with the hu Hungarian example, we also have uh, the beginning of a series of um, Eastern and Southern European countries doing the same thing. And for now, we have um, Hungary, Latvia, Bulgaria, Cyprus, Malta, Greece, all of which have implemented similar or um, even more outright selling of citizenship rights, um, and the more outright case is the case of Malta, which was prominent, maybe um, the one that's mo most likely to have been um, in the press more than once, because of the fact that Malta decided not to combine a residence um, and citizenship investment, but to sell citizenship outright. So you can make a phone call, say you have the amount of money. In the case of Malta, it was 650,000 euros and not 250,000, but hey, you could get it the next day without even going to Malta. You could just you know, technically get your passport. So that attracted a lot, a lot of criticism from um, the EU as really an abuse of EU citizenship, bringing in a lot of unwanted um, persons into the, the EU so much, not, not necessarily into Malta. Um, and the measure that the uh, Maltese government actually then implemented was to just raise the price. So um, in the beginning it was 
an investment linked to a real estate option, so you didn't have to just pay up, you would invest in real estate in Malta, but um, the solution was to combine the real estate option with buying government bonds and with uh, some sort of collateral, so that in the end it's 1,150,000 euros that you have to pay. Now, Malta also faced the criticism of being the only country that really actually does not even require any kind of transitional period for having a sort of residence um, permit and then a fast track to citizenship, but actually handing out passports. At the moment uh, in which it received its criticism, Malta said, well, but wait, but we're not the only ones. This has been around and it's legal in Austria for decades now. Austria said, well, we haven't been doling out that many because it's even more um, expensive in Austria. It's 10 million. Now, <laughs> the question, of course, is not of how much it costs. It's the fact of the possibility of it being legal in the first place. And of actually, and that was a lot of um, the discourse about it's, it being legitimate or not, about handing out the very right that links citizens to their um, polity and to a language and culture that apparently expresses and should somehow symbolize this, um, this link uh, by just commodifying it, making it into something that you would sell. Now, we've kind of seen why this is interesting for states um, in terms of, let's say, in the case of St. Kitts and Nevis, and Dominica, it's a sort of development strategy or alternative development strategy by commodifying something that could not be sold before. Um, in the case of the Southern and Eastern European states, um, it's more a term, a, a type of austerity management, if you want to put it like that, um, or a kind of financial crisis management um, by um, actually also say, selling something that was not out um, there for sale before. Um, in the case of all of the European countries that have implemented citizenship by investment, the explicit desire was to attract Chinese investors. And that was even in the language of the, of the law in both Hungary and Cyprus, for instance, and um, as well as Greece. Greece also made a big press fuss when the first Chinese investor actually bought Greek citizenship and it was in the with the actual signature that the Chinese investor is now a Greek citizen. Now, what is the exact interest of investors to acquire a different citizenship? It's probably clearer in the case of European states or EU citizenship than it is in the case of St. Kitts and Nevis and Dominica, but like I said before, one of the big um, advantages of the Caribbean citizenship in, in the case of St. Kitts and Nevis and Dominica is the fact that a passport from these countries allows visa-free travel to more than half of the world's countries, including the whole of Europe, Canada, and the United States. So that makes for a very interesting chunk, although it does not allow um, people to work in Europe or Canada or the United States, but um, still it's a, a big hurdle that is not there anymore. Now, uh, um, aside from this, um, also the citizenship of the Caribbean states allows you to pay no personal income tax, so you don't have to pay personal income tax while being a citizen. That's very interesting, um, especially or even so for um, US American citizens who um, now are renouncing US citizenship for exactly tax um, 
reasons by the fact that the tax income declaration in um, the United States is becoming more and more difficult if you live in a different country than the US. But it's also interesting for political reasons because um, the minute that you have a second passport that you can show um, at passport control, it can be um, less um, complicated to explain that you're a Kititian, that's the official name of a citizen of St. Kitts and Nevis, than to explain at the um, time of political turmoil that you have a passport from um, the country that is currently in the news. That's at least the um, explanation that many people that have used the possibility are um, giving about the political reasons. Also, the fact that we have no personal income tax, travel-free, uh, visa-free travel to uh, more than half of the world's countries, and taking up residence in any of the CARICOM countries, that's um, a federation of, or um, an association, not a federation, sorry, of um, several Caribbean states, um, at any time and indefinitely is a big plus for the Caribbean citizenship. Now, in the case of the European Union citizenships, um, of course, the right to free movement, the right to study and work in the EU and um, to take up residence there is a big plus. The main road that investors who have taken advantage of this opportunity have um, traveled when um, having done this is to send their children to especially UK schools, actually, but uh, mainly European schools. Now, you could say, why can't you do that? Well, uh, if you're rich enough to pay up a million euros, um, you could probably also afford tuition at Cambridge and, and Oxford, but we can um, maybe discuss this in the Q&A in order to give it a, already a bit of a hint to it. I haven't um, looked at time. How much do we have? still have 10 minutes. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> If you like. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so the point would be for many people who have looked at this um, kind of uh, development, the first um, interpretation was a, um, a euphoric one. We used to have the ascription of citizenship by Usoli and Usanguinis, two main roads, or well, a combination of the two, but mainly the right of blood or the right of soil decided how you get the citizenship of what state. So it was mainly arbitrary and in a sense with very few exceptions and very hard to achieve uh, exceptions, it was inescapable. The <coughs> fact that you can actually achieve citizenship by, well, paying up, was um, declared by some, and um, Jelena Jankic is one of them, um, but also Joachim Stern, an Austrian, um, sociologists have talked about jus pecuniae as a third option. So the law of money is now a third way to obtain citizenship. Well, what I actually want to argue here is that obviously it's not. It's a commodification for a very, very tiny and wealthy elite that um, for a change is not the white European elites that um, you would tend to um, see behind every uh, move of global capital, but is a very wealthy um, and tiny elite that is not actually um, theoretically expandable to, to um, the whole world. And that's actually the, the danger, and that, that's what prompted the um, 
EU protests or the protests from um, the EU with regards to many European countries who have implemented this and to the, the move as such. So the idea behind um, criticism of countries implementing citizenship by investment was not so much that they are betraying the idea of the link of the citizen to the polity, but the danger that it would become available to too many people. Obviously, it was not meant to become available to everyone. That's why it was specifically also said that it's um, directed at wealthy investors. But if it becomes available to a huge number of people, then obviously it kind of severs the link between having an advantage for the, the state that uses that as an economic development strategy and the people who are um, taking advantage of it. So if we're looking at the way, at, on the other hand, the um, restrictions are being um, increased for any type of migration that is um, flowing into Europe or into any other um, wealthy part of the world today, we, we see a completely different development from the one of easing up um, on measures for investors, which is not something new, which has been around before, but which is being treated differently in terms um, of the arguments. For, for the ones, it's um, the wealthy investors are welcome for a very um, restricted number and with uh, very good grounds. Now, um, if it comes to investors, they're almost never called migrants and they're not referred to as um, people who migrate, but they're relocating, they're business migrants, if migrants are all, or they're expats. And then that makes them, um, or their relocation legitimate and their kind of connection to a different country more legitimate than otherwise. Now, and connecting this to um, the idea of property, the um, legal scholar Ayala Chahar in, um, well now she's in Göttingen actually, so um, say she's, um, I think she's Canadian, Israeli-Canadian and has now relocated to Germany. Um, she um, talked about citizenship as a kind of inherited property that actually do not, does not so much symbolize the link of the citizen to the polity or any kind of cultural tie, but is actually a sublimation of the resources accumulated within the nation state territory over generations. And that practically the ascription of citizenship makes for every citizen uh, by, um, so to say, by chance, uh, makes you a um, benefiter of the kind of resources accumulated in one territory, but not the other. So the accident of chance that you would be born in a wealthy um, <coughs> state makes you an, an heir to the kind of property that has been accumulated um, there for, for generations, whether if um, chance um, wills that you are born in a territory that is um, not does not belong to a wealthy nation state. Um, it's the same ascription of citizenship that decides to the fact that you have access to much less resources. Now, the fact that we would restrict um, the access to resources very differently makes um, the institution of, of citizenship as such not <coughs> the same mechanism at the national level that it is at the global level. Because while at the national level we see kind of leveling of inequalities by conferring rights to all 
those who have citizenship rights of that country. At the, in the global perspective, barring people from entering territory and achieving rights there is also barring them from access to resources that have been accumulated in that territory for, for a long while. What is interesting to me in that context is also that it's um, a kind of a learning process um, of Europe in this context from a colonial Caribbean context that has been using this, so to say, trick for the first time. But what we see in the context of Europe is that when the trick of citizenship by investment starts working, it's when it becomes threatening to <coughs> the entire construction um, of the EU as a power structure so much. So what happened when, for instance, um, the state of Montenegro proposed to introduce its own citizenship by investment program was that um, the EU threatened to reintroduce visa for Montenegrin citizens in case it goes forward with the plans. And um, so the program has stopped for Montenegro since um, 2012, I think. Um, also, some sanctions introduced in the case of Cyprus and, and Malta um, led to um, similar developments there, although the um, investments were not stopped there. And in the case of Malta, it obviously led to the fact that the investment became much um, higher, so the, the price of citizenship was raised. The important thing to, to remember in this context is that it creates a bigger gap than was there before between who gets to choose anything, whether by paying, paying up a, a huge price or not, and those who do not have a choice because they're, they're told the minute that their citizenship is ascribed, doing anything to avoid the ascription of that citizenship is illegitimate. And a case that I've been looking at a lot is um, the um, immigration of Moldavian citizens to, into the EU through Romania by also um, claiming Romanian citizenship on the basis of what um, the Romanian state um, actually has, it's uh, sanguinis citizenship. So a lot of Moldavian citizens are actually ethnically Romanians, they have a good basis for claiming Romanian citizenship, but Moldavia isn't part of the EU, Romania is. It's not part of Schengen, but it's part of the EU. So a lot of pressure from the EU from, for Romania to stop uh, Moldavian immigration um, into the EU was um, based on um, arguments that said we, we do not want any um, illegal um, immigra immigration and um, the, the kind of arguments that are using and abusing the right to citizenship by um, to, to, uh, the right of blood by claiming Romanian ancestry. Now of course abusing the, um, the right of money, the right of blood, or the right to territory is not um, put to the same test when um, using the logic of, of investment. So we have a level, double logic of citizenship ascription there and citizenship achievement that um, becomes problematic in the context of the EU, but only in the case that it threatens the power structure of the EU as such. The argument is not used in order to completely do away with um, the practice, because obviously the practice was there before. Like I said, Austria has had it for a long time. The point is to keep it as exclusive as possible, because the, the right to come for citizenship arbitrarily is still one that wants to be defended. Nobody argues for this type of practice to be completely abolished. 
But the minute it threatens to become widely available, that's when it, it becomes a problem. And that, that's when the double logic comes into play. And I think I'll stop. Okay, thank you very much, Manila. So maybe uh, we can briefly talk uh, about a topic that I think uh, is cutting across both of your uh, uh, presentations. And I think that, uh, yeah, also a topic that is, for me as a political scientist, uh, and, um, of, of high interest. Uh, and basically, I would say both of you addressed the issue of uh, effects of a globalized economy, of globalized global capitalism, and especially the effects on, on inequality, effects on access to mm. goods, access to entitlements, access to property rights whatsoever, and you have a certain, yeah, you have privilege, privileged access for some groups while other actors, other groups um, have more difficulty in accessing these goods. So these are clear effects of, yeah, rise in, in, in inequality. Um, and my, I have two questions on this. And the first one would be what, what, what responses are available? What do you think, what can be done? So is, is it a way to kind of communalization as a response to individualization? Is this an option? Uh, your case, Nivedita, what, what would be, and also here, with any response, we would have to ask what are the, the effects, the redistributive effects, what are the effects on uh, equality <laughs> or inequality? Both within societies, but also in comparison, you know, there might be uh, um, shifts across countries. Yeah. Um, that would be one thing. And the other question I have is, uh, it's in a way maybe also provocative. Uh, are, are there nevertheless positive effects? I mean, we see there is a rise in inequality, but we could also argue, in your case, you mentioned that there is a, you know, uh, kind of selling citizenship, marketization of citizenship uh, is a way, um, it's kind of de development of countries, might stimulate uh, uh, the development of countries. It also might help to manage austerity. Uh, it might also uh, help uh, to stimulate economic growth and hence could argue even that the poorer might, might benefit. And you could even say even, um, in, in your case, Nivedita, you mentioned this, that the, the women uh, were benefiting from individualization, so they they got uh, the access to, to <coughs> land ownership, although this was kind of within a debate of, of uh, uh, individualization, basically a rather different frame, but nevertheless you could um, also say that is a, a, a positive effect. So that would be my, my question mm -hmm. to you. So I don't know who wants to start. <coughs> Um, so there were uh, the, the two questions actually, uh, and I'll take the second one first, which is um, you know the positive effects uh, of uh, uh, processes that produce uh, which transform uh, non-capitalist into capitalist relations. Essentially, are you saying? So the question is, are there positive effects of that? And I think historically we know that um, there are effects that we see as positive at one level, you know, individuation, 
um, liberty, freedom, all the things that you associate with, you know, when, when capitalism um, enters uh, Europe uh, and, and enli enlightenment values are, you know, fostered and so on. But we know very well that eventually um, capitalism restricted freedom and brought up and, and, and entrenched inequality. Um, so uh, I, and I, I actually it's very important that you pose that uh, provocative question because obviously uh, in India this is the first question that one is asked. Uh, but are you not for? Don't you? I mean, you're a feminist. Don't you believe that women should have equal rights to land? Um, the interesting thing is, I would never be asked this in a meeting uh, of uh, land rights activists, for example. Because this argument is not coming from an abstract theoretical perspective. This argument is coming from a sudden recognition that land rights activists are recognizing that they do not want any longer to fight for individual rights. Um, so, so it is possible that briefly, for, for a short period, certain elite uh, women would have rights to land. Uh, and it's brief because the whole point is that eventually these lands are being taken over by the state. Um, so the principle of eminent domain uh, of the state, which uh, basically says that the state has control, has has priority over all land, and it was used once upon a time to bring about land reform, but now it's being used. Or, or it was also used to, for example, to build big dams and you know nuclear power stations. You take over land from farmers and you do it to build the nation. But now it's straight away handed over to corporations. You, dispossession has been defined uh, as the land redistributing resources from the poor to the rich. And that's actually what's happening in large parts of you know, Africa and India and so on. So in that context, uh, what appears to be positive is really uh, simply an intermediary step towards handing over land to corporations. So um, that's what I would say about that. And this links to your first question about you know, what is the strategy. Um, so it's interesting that this term commons has now uh, being used. It's now being used as a verb, uh, commoning. It's being used as a verb by movements all over the globe. And uh, it does seem to me that we need to, just as uh, many of us uh, are part of are either sympathetic to or, or are actually part of uh, movements to challenge intellectual property rights uh, as, as contained by corporations. Uh, uh, so you have the digital commons, you have intellectual property commons. I mean, I, I, we have to see uh, uh, the struggle uh, for uh, the struggle, feminist struggle for equity, not in terms of individual rights to land for women, but in terms of collective ownership of land and commoning. So I would say, yes, that is the only way to go. Okay. Yeah, I would also like to start with a second question. So um, the fact that selling citizenship may help to manage austerity or do the poor also benefit um, from, from such measures, um, it may seem on the surface that this is the case, but uh, especially in the case of austerity measures, especially in Greece, uh, we can see that, um, or but also in Cyprus, the measures that uh, were put in place, especially in the Greek crisis, where we saw that um, on the news all the time, that people have no access to money and that um, you do not get cash from ATMs and you cannot pay loans and, and you are um, obliged to um, renew 
um, savings accounts indefinitely, even when they mature. All of this did not apply to um, Western nationals and to foreign to investors who have gotten citizenship through this um, this mechanism. So it was obviously devised to keep the or at least keep the gap as it was, if not widen it between those who had possibilities and those who didn't. Of course, everybody uh, had a hard time getting cash from any ATM in Greece uh, during the, the high point of the crisis. But the fact that um, you could somehow manage by, I don't know, using um, internet <coughs> payment forms and so on and so forth, and that did not apply to you because of your passport, makes the, the um, kind of, yeah, gravity, the kind of the uh, importance of the citizenship at that exact moment in economic terms. So obviously, these kinds of measures, although I find them um, in a way endearing the fact that um, this kind of trick of commodifying something for a change um, does work as an or could work as an alternative development strategy, this all stays within the logic of capitalism. So if you're selling something that is based on the principle of including a certain number of people by excluding the big mass of people, um, it will never lead to anything that would benefit a large mass of people because that's not the principle. So that leads me to the, the question, okay, what, what can we do, what, what can be done? Of course, abolishing citizenship is not a, a feasible feat, but the institution of citizenship has been devised to work as an equalizing mechanism <coughs> at the level of the nation state. So um, the idea is include a large number of people, give them rights so that they can benefit from the resources accumulated within this nation state uh, while excluding all others. So it's not so much about abolishing citizenship as it is about abolishing borders and making resources available. Now, we can discuss about how utopian that is, but um, I think it's a, it's a relevant um, thought, at least, to what we're all witnessing today. And the fact that, um, you know, some people like Ayala um, Shahar in, in, she has a, a book called The Birthright Lottery, Citizenship and Global Inequality, which also thinks about solutions, but the solution is to tax rich citizens to tax citizenships, so to say, of citizens of uh, rich nation states. Now, I don't want to be the instance that computes the taxes for um, how much is it is worth that you are excluding other citizens from the, the resources accumulated within your nation state. I, I think that's, um, that's a very difficult task, if, if at all feasible. But taxing citizenships that have more privileges only amounts to, let's keep things as they are and just redistribute a little so that it doesn't harmonize. So it still stays within the logic of exclusion. And um, I think the problem is not citizenship. The problem is what you commodify in order to keep the same principle going. And the principle is exclusion. So it should be about inclusion. It should be about abolishing hindrances. And borders are hindrances. Can I comment on that? I was actually thinking of what I listened to you, Manola, that there have been uh, there have been theoretical attempts to think about citizenship as legitimate, legitimately arising from labor, mm -hmm. rather than birth, uh, naturalization. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, Mahmoud Mandani yes. uh, has argued in the context of Africa 
that um, a citizenship should ideally arise from place of labor because large parts of Africa actually consist of communities uh, that are moving for work. And um, that could be an interesting alternative to pose um, to uh, uh, citizenship by investment to say, to precisely to open up your, your, what, your last point about inclusion. Um, that, for example, in India today, um, there's an attempt to draw in as citizens people of Indian origin, PIO, there are a number of acronyms. Uh, that is the wealthy Indians who are settled in Europe and in uh, uh, the US earning in euros and dollars, very often not even sending remittances home, these wealthy people are being welcomed as citizens and there's attempts to give them even the right to vote. But large numbers of Nepali, Bangladeshi, uh, immigrant labor in India who keep the economy running have absolutely no rights. But they're working there. They are the ones who are keeping the economy going. Uh, or at least they're contributing substantially to the Indian economy because they're they labor. So I think the uh, counterposing citizenship by labor to citizenship by investment might be a, a good way of fracturing the uh, supposed positive effects of citizenship by investment. Okay. So I, I think we've already started quite a, an interesting discussion. I think it's uh, time to, uh, to open the floor to the general audience. We still have uh, some time for questions um, and general discussion. So. Does anybody want to start? <coughs> Any questions you have you want to raise? Yes, please. Yeah, this is a question for Nevita. Uh, um, it seems to me that the kind of scenario you're describing, in which ideally the land would be held by a community, is, can itself only ever be an intermediate stage, right? Because uh, the danger that seems to me is that um, you're potentially um, trapped in a double bind in the sense that um, the community itself might exclude women, right? And that would be that would sort of be very detrimental to the positive effect that uh, other, that it would otherwise get, uh, or the community might be might exclude Muslims, for instance. Um, so how how are you going to avoid that sort of uh, negative side effect of, of uh, what you put? Shown as a positive. No, that's uh, that's an absolutely um, crucial question. Um, but first, I want to say that uh, that with forests and with uh, tribal lands, there are already community forms of ownership uh, in place. These are historically community forms of ownership, and forests have basically been. Uh, just sustained for hundreds of years by forest communities which are overnight made into criminals by legislation because the state says the forests are ours so their normal everyday activities picking up <coughs> firewood for example picking up firewood becomes a crime because you're suddenly taking state property um, so um, community and collective forms of ownership already exist uh, and uh, with agricultural land that's less so because uh, the intervention started with, with colonialism, uh, with different forms of land tenure systems which established private property in land, <coughs> uh, individual private property in land. Um, so, so, so first of all, there are already existing practices. They're not something that has to be introduced. Now, when it comes to exclusion of, and I did mention this briefly at the end, uh, it's not so much Muslims who would be, it's not on the grounds of religion that the exclusion would happen on the basis of caste, 
because there are there are wealthy Muslim landowners as well, although most of them went to Pakistan, but there are still Muslim uh, landowners. The exclusion would be on the basis of caste. The exclusion would be on the basis of gender. Um, but the whole point is that we're talking about movements. We're talking of forest workers' movements. We're talking about uh, land movements, for example, the Adivasi movement, which make this an issue. So this is not. Uh, so this is not something. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a political stance. So when you when you argue for collective ownership, you're arguing for collective ownership, which challenges traditional forms of exclusion. So I'm by no means arguing for some kind of going back to traditional forms. No. Of, uh, I'm talking about movements that are actually forging new forms of and uh, new ways of thinking about. So for example, if you look at tribes in the northeastern part of India, uh, you find that there are very strong women's movements there, very strong women's organizations, which, um, which are pushing for women's rights to take to decision making in the traditional councils. And what they say is that the male leadership is perfectly comfortable with infringing traditional community land rights in order to sell land to corporations. But when it comes to women's rights decision making, they suddenly assert, uh, you know, our traditions. Mm -hmm. Whereas the women would, in fact, intervene in the decision making to stop land from being sold to corporations. Uh, so we are actually looking at very new and um, new forms of political action, which are trying to forge new notions of collectivity, which challenge these traditional things. Okay. Yeah, I have a, I don't know if it's only a terminological question, but I think it's a, a substantial as well, because you have both been talking about process of commodification in both of your stories, and I wonder if uh, these are really processes of commodification in a, in a strong sense of, of the concept, um, as, a, as a process that, that opens up spaces for surplus production and, and for capital accumulation, because in, in, in your case I would say, well, isn't this only a process of monetizing or monetarizing citizenship? Is this, this is really a commodification of citizenship? And what is the capital accumulated out of, of this process? So maybe, as you, as you mentioned, maybe political capital or social capital that, that can be accumulated, but is this an, uh, an enlargement of, of the capitalist <coughs> logic onto, uh, in, in a strong sense of capitalist accumulation logic on, onto other, other goods? I, I'm wondering about that. And in your, in your case, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure because I'm, I, I'm I'm not well informed about the case, but I would imagine that um, giving property rights to, to uh, land property rights uh, opens up the space for subsistence economy, maybe, or for informal economy, um, and not, not, not really for capital accumulation or the capitalization of land. So uh, that would be a, a question. Um, and to, to Manuel, I, I would like to reformulate the provocative question of Christoph Knell. Because, um, well, why, if citizenship is um, about exclusion in the first place and by definition, then why not make it a, a, a source of uh, public revenue and, and, and sell it? Or what's, um, uh, wouldn't that be uh, maybe an, a step to um, demystify citizenship and uh, to, to well, um, open up your, our eyes that's, that citizenship is about not about inclusion but about exclusion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would you like so, to, to start? 
Okay, um, thank you so much, Stefan. Um, well, I would argue that um, it is a form of commodification, not only of monetization, but um, we're actually looking in the wrong direction when we're expecting the nation state to be the one that makes the profit from it. And I didn't um, get into that, but um, actually there's um, one, there's several, but there's one prominent um, agency that um, has um, been in charge of managing all of these citizenship by investment programs, and that's um, Henley and Partners. Their um, office is in the island of Jersey in the English Channel, um, so in an offshore tax haven. Um, and um, they have been the one to implement St. Kitts and Nevis and Dominica's uh, citizenship by investment programs, and they're currently administrating Malta's. Um, they are also holding or hosting yearly citizenship by investment parties where they advertise the newest programs to investors in the sense of, okay, what kind of citizenship would you like to have this year? We have this product on offer. Um, and they are the ones, which I think is um, actually the most uh, worrying part about this, um, that not even the idea of the alternative development strategy was supposed to bring money back to the state, right, to solve a problem there. And the ones who are really making huge profits out of this, and um, it was um, also big in the press because with Malta's, with the scandalization of Malta's program and with the fact that the citizenship has become more expensive, um, people also kind of... Um, got wind of the fact that Henley and Partners plays a big role there, and they, they um, took that into account, so it was um, discussed a lot in the press. Now, the fact that they administer the program and implement it is, you could say, legitimate. If they charge high enough prices for it, then okay, then they have you know, discovered a market niche. It is a commodity then, because they are making huge profits out of it, but they are also in charge of filtering the candidates which, of course, makes for a, a conflict of interest. They are extremely interested in a higher number of people <laughs> buying the citizenship, and they're the ones responsible for um, not letting uh, people with a criminal record and people who are, you know, uh, in, with different uh, t charges and so on and so forth. But, of course, given that every kind of customer that um, slips through the ropes would not be a paying customer is, um, is a problem there. So um, I think I'm... Um, Looking at them for, from very many angles, on the one hand, they're the ones profiting from the investment, but they're um, also the ones providing the kind of data that um, nation states have not been providing for a, for a while, and that's also kind of e um, yearly rankings of what is citizenship worth. And there's every year something changes because there's a new state or there's a new agreement that um, says, you know, you now have a visa free travel with this and that. Um, so they ranked 219 countries in the world um, by the number of countries that a passport from um, that state allows you visa free travel to. Uh, so Germany is on pl um, second place. If you're wondering, <laughs> um, the, to get, um, the US, but Germany's not alone. There's um, so, um, Sweden and the US and the UK are first, um, Germany, Luxembourg and France are second, and then there's um, several others. Um, until, um, so Afghanistan is on the last um, place. And um, so if, if you want to guess, um, Germany has access to 174 <coughs> countries visa-free. Um, so the German passport allows you to travel visa-free to 170 
four countries, whereas a passport from Afghanistan um, gets you access to 28 countries, one of which is Afghanistan. So it's 27. <laughs> but it, it doesn't, it, it, it's not common sense because uh, some countries do require um, certain um, documents for you to go back to your own country. So not all countries require it. So that sometimes counts as a visa and sometimes counts as just showing your passport. So it's complicated there. Um, your second question, why not make citizenship um, public? Uh, publicly available and, and uh, if it's just about exclusion. Well, the, the thing is, the fascinating thing about it is that it's not only about exclusion. The fact is, in the ambit of the nation state, it is about inclusion. And the, the entire range of um, theorists of citizenship from, uh, well, from Max Weber actually, to Tolkien Parsons, to T.H. Marshall, who were all about how citizenship confers more and more rights and how it's an equalizing mechanism that actually counterbalances socioeconomic inequalities were not wrong. They were very right about the effects within the nation state. Now, the problem arises uh, when you zoom out of the nation state and go to the global perspective, the same thing that confers rights and equalizes, it doesn't, of course, it doesn't create perfect equality, but it creates relative equality uh, compared to the, the situation before, compared to the entire um, theory of modernity about feudalism being a more unequal type of arrangement than um, a, citizen, a, a modern society where citizenship is an equalizing mechanism. Now, we can argue whether or not this was the case, but uh, in terms of citizenship conferring rights, that is something that within Western European nation states worked. At the same time that it was restricting the rights to its citizenry, it was excluding the rest of the world from participating in the same pool of resources. And this is what creates pressures, uh, competitive pressures outside of the nation state borders, which is why the entire discussion is not about citizenship, although this is the example. The discussion is about borders and what they do to create exclusion. So my point is not, is not citizenship is about exclusion and we've discovered this and we all have to take a global perspective. No, of course, we need a nation state perspective and we need a global perspective. But it's like on, in these gestalt drawings where you can, if you look closely, you see two faces and then if you look differently, you see a vase, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like we have contours and yeah, yeah. so you, you see either the black is two faces and the white is a vase. I'm not saying it's only a vase. I'm saying it's both. But one is the nation state perspective and one is the global one. Um, so um, you were asking whether land rights open up uh, actually greater opportunities for subsistence, etc. It's exactly the opposite. Uh, the property titling agenda is actually uh, replacing and uh, transforming subsistence economies based on use rights into uh, capitalist economies based on ownership. So for example, uh, what, they, uh, what they do, uh, what the property titling agenda does is that if you, if you take um, the ways in which people live in uh, what used to be called developing uh, societies, but which we have to simply recognize as something like the Global South, um, lands are used, you know, you, you, there would be a part of a pavement, for example, which is used by a tea seller in the morning and a newspaper vendor in the afternoon and someone selling flowers in the evening. You know, there's a whole way of subsistence economies surviving on use rights. And the whole 
point of the property titling agenda is to end this, is to ensure that land is owned by one person or whatever it is, land or any kind of resource is owned by a, an identifiable person, because the whole point is that the state wants to make these property regimes legible to itself. That is the agenda. So De Soto's book, uh, you're probably familiar with it, but, but the subtitle of it is Why Capitalism Has Failed in Most of the World. He's actually mourning the fact that uh, uh, capitalism has in fact not worked. It has in it, most parts of the global south, it's all dead capital. It's not entering the market. It's not being used to produce what happened in the US in 2008. Because when you own property, the assumption is then you will mortgage it, you will. So the, this is, you know, I mean, this is what the degrowth movement has recognized that use rights over property, you know, over property rights. So um, it does it. So land rights actually does exactly the opposite transform subsistence and use rights into uh, a proper, proper capitalist economies. Um, yes, thank you very much for your presentations. I mean, uh, you didn't mention Switzerland uh, with citizenship uh, by investment. I think Switzerland has a long tradition of uh, citizenship by investment, and I would expect that tradition stems from the possibility that has always existed in cities uh, to invest in Stadtrecht, in a city, right? which uh, you could still do in the, uh, as far as I know, in the early 20th century. With certain privileges you would have as, um, as a citizen of a, of, a, of a city. And so I think that, I mean, but I think that is a side story. Uh, and I wonder what you think about that. And I mean, Switzerland is not a problem as long as it's only Switzerland. I mean, as you mentioned, the problem emerges if you have uh, the, um, if you have the possibility to to use the citizenship in in other countries in the European Union or um, in the English case, um, the question I really would have to you is I mean your plea for the Commons is that indirectly a plea for different types of system of production? I mean, you know, I mean production in terms of family work. To, to organizing um, investments in, in agriculture, to organizing labor, the way labor employment is. You didn't mention that, but I have the feeling that is the root of the argument, or the basic root of the argument is the commons and everything else you didn't mention is, is, is part of, of the story of a, of a different way of social organization. No, I uh, maybe just take one more question. Okay. So yes. Yeah, thank you, Lilita, um, for this enlightening talk. I have a question towards another um, field of um, feminist, uh, let's say, agenda. How does uh, um, that articulates with this land ownership uh, issue, which is uh, female empowerment through NGOs by bringing uh, women into the ambit or through microcredits and banking system, opening bank accounts, bring them into the ambit of capitalism and thereby also transforming mode of production like of independent producers or non-capitalist or pre-capitalist mode of production based on self-sufficiency, bringing people into the labor market and bringing them, yeah, becoming food labor dependent on 
So how do, do these two developments kind of articulate? Um, yes, absolutely, uh, to you. The, uh, it is, um, I would say it's not so much a plea for different systems of production, but a need to recognize that there are other systems of production that are working. So if you look at, uh, and they were either working uh, traditionally or they're working because of politically asserting that this is how we're going to do it. So if you look at the Adivasi movements, for example, the indigenous people's movements, or forest people's movements, they're actually insisting that we will we do not want individual rights. So uh, so what happens is that um, uh, there are there's actually a mix of land rights uh, uh, patterns even in customary uh, 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 regimes. So there would be some degree of individual rights, some degree of community ownership, etc. Um, and and the state insists on recognizing individual rights, but not community rights when they implement forest laws. So there are different, there are already collective modes of working. There are also deliberately produced new collective modes of working. And so absolutely, I, uh, uh, I just didn't have the time to go into the alternatives part. But when you look at movements across the globe, a movement for commoning or a movement for the commons is absolutely uh, um, an attempt to produce uh, to, to to go into other kinds of systems of production, which um, which are counter capitalist, if not anti capitalist, they're at least counter capitalist. Um, thank you, Philip. That is very much. I mean, I don't have much to add uh, to that, but definitely microcredit and those kinds of uh, this is part of the larger uh, 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 the larger program to transform. Um, non-capitalist into capitalist modes of production to bring to bring into the inside what was on the outside. Microcredit is an absolutely one of the key instruments of bringing uh, um, all kinds of activities into uh, uh, the visit into the you know so that it becomes legible to the state and so on. So um, they're, they're very much linked uh, the the property titling agenda, land title, all of that is linked. It's part of the larger transformation of um, subsistence activities into into um, capitalist um, non-use profit making kind of absolutely that's very much part of it. Um, yeah, thank you. Just just shortly on Switzerland, um, I didn't mention it. There's many other types of countries that have um, citizenship by investment with residence requirement. That's why um, this is not part of the new wave of leaving out the residence requirement and just implementing citizenship as a development strategy, let alone the fact that Switzerland would not be on the high priority list of, of um, countries wanting to implement a development strategy. Um, but also, if from the point of view of investors, it's not interesting because it's, it does have um, a lot of access to um, visa-free travel around the world, but it's not part of the EU. So the very reason why many people want any passport from all of these countries conferring um, citizenship by investment is that they actually are not targeting that country. Whereas in the case of, the, of Switzerland, uh, it would be precisely restricted first to Switzerland and then um, having some um, other advantages that are not linked to working and taking up residence in the EU. It doesn't solve the EU problem. That's yeah. I have also again a very maybe sort of fundamental conceptual question to all of us and especially to you both. Um, 
as you just said, for example, the microcredit issue or others, and you, you worded it that way, and I'm a bit surprised about that, say, to bring certain forms of, or certain activities, certain relations, certain practices into capitalism. And I would strongly disagree. I'm not firm on these precise issues, but for example, coming from the entire analysis of capitalism, modernity, for example, through a care and feminist care debate lens, I would very much frame, let's say, sort of everything. <laughs> also non-paid labor, also so-called private relations and practices, which are not in a evidence sense marked uh, market driven which don't give us a certain kind of surplus in money etc but still would of course frame these things practices and parts of society also citizenship if it's not viable it's still a capitalist or it's embedded in part of capitalism like many many other issues so i would in this what we're talking now i would be more maybe just um, uh, comfortable or would understand better if we talked about commodifying, about transforming certain activities into market-driven uh, uh, relations, etc. But I wouldn't like exclude certain uh, activities or certain contexts from capitalism. But maybe I got something wrong because I would say capitalism is a much broader kind of framing which also of course and systematically includes a lot of aspects which are not paid, which are not uh, etc. market you know, related. So this is for me a kind of analytical question. Are we really talking about commodification or about capitalization or, or bringing into capitalism? Mm -hmm. um, so if um that's, I would say that I might I might argue the opposite, um, which is that not all forms of market relations are capitalist. <coughs> Markets predate capitalism, uh, yeah. and um, and I think I would make an argument um, coming from, in fact, a left perspective. But I would still make an argument which leftists don't make that there is an outside to capital. Just as a feminist, I would say there is an outside to, feminist, uh, to patriarchy. There is an outside to patriarchy. Uh, but there is, uh, you know, patriarchy is not all-encompassing, um, nor is capitalism. So if you're familiar with the work of Graham Gibson, for example, this is the argument they make. They make that direct parallel between uh, a patriarchy and capital in, in, in the sense that there is an outside. So, um, so I, I would still say in the context of the particular moves that we see with reference to the production of individual rights, to uh, individual rights to different kinds of property, to the property titling agenda, to, uh, pros to uh, policies like microcredit. I think these are explicitly about, I would still say, they're explicitly about producing certain forms of capitalist relations. It's not only about bringing into the market because the market as I said, predates capitalism. And I think it would be not very useful for us to think that wherever there's a market, there's capitalism. Capitalism, uh, it, I mean, there, there are, there's an outside in space and there's an outside in time to capital. So, um, so I actually still argue that I see these moves as attempts to produce. The point is these attempts are not necessarily 100% successful, as De Soto found out. And they're not successful because 
people live their lives outside of these ways of living. They still share. We download music. Uh, I don't know if it happens uh, very much in the heart of... Uh, well, I think it's, it's, as you said, a fundamental question about uh, what is capitalism and how does it work. And um, I come from world systems analysis. I believe that, the, that capitalism has been global for at least the past 500 years. Um, and then even subsistence production in this type of system is um, profitable for capitalism. That's why it, even if it's not visible at the same level, it, it is still subsidizing and making possible profits from um, wage labor. So I guess the basic question is, uh, is capitalism wage labor for world systems analysis? Definitely is not. And um, a lot of, and, and obviously, actually there's a discussion in two weeks time in Kassel about whether or not um, slavery and capitalism are compatible, which I I thought it was a question that was <laughs> had been solved, but <laughs> but uh, will be discussed uh, with um, Michael Soiske um, um, and and um, Hans um, Hans Peter Borchardt. Um, so that's uh, Hans Jürgen, sorry, um, and that's uh, something that obviously is still around as a type of question that <coughs> non-wage labor is still seen as contradictory to capitalism. But I would be on the same page with you there. So that's a, a usual feature as soon as we start to discuss the fundamental question, uh, time is running out. So I this is already five minutes behind our schedule. So uh, I have to close the session. Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for a highly interesting presentation.